from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. So this morning, end of the year, and we try every year to be really intentional about what we're doing through the course of the year with men's ministry. We don't want to just drop in message after message that are unrelated, but rather we spend time praying and, and consulting with the elders, trying to understand what do we believe the Lord would have us talk to the men about this year. And coming into this year, we felt it's probably going to be significant for us to understand how to trust God when things get hard, right? And that has a number of applications. It can be when the bad medical uh, diagnosis comes through. It can be when um, a child is going astray. It can be when the job falls apart, or it can be when life gets really weird and the politics of the world do in such a way that it becomes not only uncomfortable, um, but even um, cost you to stand on your faith, right? So we're looking around saying it feels like it would be good for our body to understand how do we lean into God? How do we trust God? when things get hard or when things get weird. And so for the course of the year, we started with Robert Sidlow, who talked to us about the sovereignty of God. And we felt like we had to understand that no matter what comes to us, guys, you got to wrap your brain around this. No matter what difficulty, adversity, or evil befalls us, it has to pass through my loving Father's hand or it won't get to me. God is period. So we felt we had to start there, and then you leave that, and you say, okay, if God is sovereign, but he's not good, I'm in real trouble. And we said, okay, what are three truths we got to hold on to? We have to know that God is sovereign, but also that he is good. But if God is sovereign and he's good, but he doesn't care about me, my particular situation is very concerning. So God is sovereign, God is good, and we know that God loves us, right? So those three truths are what have to hold us when things get difficult. And then, uh, let's see, did we do another one after that? No, I just got lost. Yeah, we did. Louise talked to us. It's coming back. I think Andrew's here. Yeah, trusting and acting. Man, I lost track there for a minute. Yeah, okay, so God is sovereign. God is good. God loves me. What do I do now? Like, how do I respond? Do I, do I rush into action? Do I sit back and wait on a sovereign God? How does that look? And Louise actually did a fantastic job. I can't believe I blanked on that. And then the final one, and I think this is really important, guys. So, so when difficulty comes, this is where we are today. When difficulty comes, as we're trusting God, as we're understanding how to act on it, what is the role of the church? What is, what is the benefit of God's bride gathered together? Is this just something I come to out of responsibility or obligation? Is it something I'm doing so that my kids grow up in the faith? Or is, or is this that God has given us so that in our journey towards heaven, we might glorify God with our life, right? Who is it that stands beside me and puts her hand on me when I'm beginning to stumble? Who is it that reaches down into the rabbit hole and pulls me back up when I start to spiral? What's well, my brothers? Amen. Amen. And our prayer, our hope in men's ministry is that you guys, the men at CLF, are living and understanding and breathing this every day. Right? And so this morning we're going to talk about what is the role of the church when it comes to trusting God in difficult times. And so I'm going to commend to you the speaker this morning. I don't do this most of the time because most of the time you know the speaker. A lot of you guys may not know the speaker. Uh, Andrew Crawford is our senior. He'd be the guy with the mic. Um, 
I don't just put anybody in front of you guys. Um, as a guy that is trying his very best to lead men's ministry, I'm trying to put guys in front of you that are going to have real value for your soul. And Andrew Crawford is a particularly special guy to me. Um, about six years ago, give or take, he was a 21-year-old young man wanted to ask my daughter out. And I am the gatekeeper. So he's coming to me and he says, I want to, I want to ask you a question. Can we have coffee? I said, yes. So I drove to Corvallis. I sat in a little coffee shop with him and we began to talk about life and I asked him the things that interested him and so on and so forth. And, and, uh, he, he said the two things he loves most is rock climbing and theology. And I thought, well, this is a cool dude. <laughs> and, uh, I ask you a question. Um, should the Lord Terry and, and, and you and Savannah move forward in your relationship? How do you see, um, spiritually leading my daughter? What does that look like for you? Or that I have not forgotten. He said, well, he said, I don't know the answer to that, but I see it happening in the context of the local church. Now, guys, think back to when you were 21. Yeah, you all do the same thing I do. Like, oh, my gosh. The guy sitting across the table from me said, you know, I see that happen in the context of the local church. I can't tell you how valuable that is. And so when I thought about who do I want to talk to my guys about the value of the local church. I want a guy that not only knows what it says in Scripture, but it means something to him. Fast forward, and my son-in-law is looking for a job, and he gets a job, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to be having kids. I want to raise my kids in a church where they will come alongside me while I'm parenting my kids, who will help me and my wife understand how to do that well, and where my son or daughter, Lord willing, can grow up in the fellowship and the community of believers that will encourage them in their faith. And he picked up and he moved from where he was in Corvallis to Roseburg, Oregon, because he wanted to be a part of this fellowship. Guys, we will pick up and move for a job, but would you pick up and move your family to set them in a context where they could be nurtured in a local church? Does it matter that much to you? So that's our speaker this morning, guys. It's my son-in-law. It is my great privilege to have him come and speak to you guys this morning. I'd ask you to open uh, your Bibles and pay attention. He's going to bless you with the word. So, Andrew, would you come up this morning? I'm going to pray for this guy and turn him loose. Father, we just uh, we commend Andrew to you. We know that you want your men to hear from him. Father, you'd speak through him. Uh, Give him boldness as he proclaims your truth, confidence that it's your truth, not his. And, Father, open our ears that we would be men that listen and leave changed, uh, that we would treasure this great gift you've given us, which is your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Hello. Oh, can you guys hear me? Perfect. I I remember that story a little differently than Dan. Um, I remember having pitted out sitting in this coffee shop and drinking coffee. So it was pretty stressful for me. <laughs> uh, but thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. Uh, good morning to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. That is where we'll be this morning. And one thing I'd like to share with you first before we get started. Uh, our topic this morning is, as Dan said, the role of the local church in difficult times. And as a result, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, about my local church. Uh, about you all. Um, as, as Dan said, Savannah and I moved down from Corvallis about three years ago and became members at Covenant Life shortly shortly thereafter. And I was, I was thinking about you all. What struck me is how quickly you've become dear brothers. You have encouraged me when I needed encouragement. You, you have corrected me when I've needed correction. 
you are a true blessing from God to me and my is that you all will be blessed by this look at Hebrews chapter 10, which leads us to the topic at hand this morning. Uh, And I just want to provide a little disclaimer at the beginning. This will not be a comprehensive look at all the passages pertaining to the local church in difficult times. Rather, what we're going to do this morning is focus in specifically on a singular passage. I, I tell you this so you know that it's not a comprehensive look at all the functions of the local church in difficult times, but rather what the author of Hebrews told his readers to do during the difficult times they faced, and by extension, what we can learn from this. So men, if you'd stand with me as we read God's word, and men, remember, we stand to confess not only to ourselves, but to all of those around us, that what we are about to read are the inspired words of God. So let's read Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, this morning, um, we praise your name for the opportunity to open your word together this morning as brothers in Christ. I ask that you would work through my inadequacies and be glorified. May we make much of Jesus this morning, and may we see the blessing that is the local church. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, You guys should have a handout on the tables there, and in that handout, you'll see the the big idea for us this morning. And the, the big idea for us this morning is this, the foundation for our perseverance as the church in difficult times is found solely in Jesus. I'll read that again. The foundation for our perseverance as the church in difficult times is found solely. And what I'd like to provide you with this morning is a working definition of local church, of a local church. Uh, just recently, I was having a conversation with someone that I work with. We, we were on a trip together, and the topic, the topic of church came up. Um, I didn't know he was a Christian, but uh, he had some thoughts on the church, and this is, this is what he said. He said, we don't have to go to church. We just have to be the church. And that sounds good, right? Like, let's get stuff done. I mean, like, let's go out and do stuff. But what does it mean to, to be the church? Well, what I hope we see this morning from Hebrews is that to be the church includes being at church, uh, being consistently present at the local gathering. So, so what is the definition of the local church? This morning, we are focused primarily on the role of the local church in difficult times. And I believe Jonathan Lehman, in his short book, Church Membership, provides a helpful definition. Uh, he says, quote, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. 
So we see a local church is a group of Christians. It, it, takes, it takes more than one of us. What do they regularly do? They regularly gather in the name of Christ and in the name of Christ alone. To do what? To affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus. Which leads us to our first point this morning, a 10,000 foot view of Hebrews. As we attempt to understand exactly what's being said here in verses 19 through 25, we need to first take a step back and look at this letter in its larger context. So what we don't know about the author, uh, he never reveals himself to us in the letter, nor has church history remembered who he was. Furthermore, we don't know the original audience's location. But what we do know is that this letter was written to a church who had suffered previously as a result of their faith in Christ. If you look down just a couple of verses in verse 32 of chapter 10, it says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. But this church had not yet suffered to the point of death. In chapter 12, verse 4, the author of Hebrews writes, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. There is a temptation in this audience, in this church, to renounce their faith in Jesus. Philip Hughes, in his commentary on Hebrews, says this, quote, It is apparent that a situation has arisen in which a particular community of Christians is contemplating a compromise of disastrous consequences, since it would mean, in effect, the abandonment of the gospel. Faced with daily indignities and the prospect of persecution of a more severe nature, they are sorely tempted to withdraw from the garden danger of squandering their birthright in order to purchase temporary relief. So put yourself in the shoes of the author of Hebrews for a moment this morning. If, if you found yourself away from your family for an extended period of time, and you received word that your family, as a result of suffering they were going through, were about to make a disastrous, life-altering decision, and you had the opportunity to write a letter to them, what, what would you write? That certainly would change the tone of the letter that you would write to them, and we see this in this letter to the Hebrews. Our author in Hebrews provides five warnings to this church. And have the peril of rejecting this great salvation. In chapter 3, he tells them of the peril of rejecting Jesus. In chapter 5, the peril of apostasy. In chapter 10, the peril of continued deliberate sin. In chapter um, 12, the peril of rejecting God's gracious word. Yet, this is not all that the author of Hebrews does. He doesn't spend his whole time telling them what not to do. No, he points their attention. The major themes of the book of Hebrews is Christ is superior. You say superior to what? The author of Hebrews would say superior to everything. We see Christ superior to prophets, superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to the Old Testament priesthood, superior to the Old Covenant and its sacrifices. And finally, at the end of this letter, Christ, the new superior way. Philip Hughes again writes in his commentary, It is evident, therefore, that the whole practical thrust of this epistle is to persuade those to whom it is addressed to resist the strong temptation to seek an easing of the hardships attendant on their Christian confession by the name of the former covenant. 
to compromise this unique gospel is to lose it. And to lose this is to lose everything. So, so what do we see here? We see a church faced with the temptation to stray away from Jesus. Why? Because of the difficulties they faced as a result of being Christian. Um, with this general understanding of this letter to the Hebrews, let us then turn our attention to these short seven verses that we're looking at this morning. And I want to provide you a roadmap for, for how we're going to work through these. Um, what we see in these seven verses are first two foundational truths to hold on to in verses 19 through 21. And because of these truths, the outflow are three let us statements. One in verse 22, one in verse 23, and finally the third in verses 24 through 25. And as we read this this morning, you may be thinking, you know, Andrew, um, really only verses 24 through 25 talk about the church. Uh, but in the Greek, this section here of seven verses is one singular sentence. What that means is this is one connected thought from beginning to end from the author. So, so we have to look at it in its entirety. Moreover, see here, brothers, the use of we and our and brothers and one another through the passage. Let, let's read it again together. So verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's, it's clear this, this is being written to a church, to, to a community of believers, which leads us then to our second point this morning, the work of Christ in verses 19 through 21. And what we first immediately see in this passage is the word therefore. And it's, it's a little corny, uh, but whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, what, what's it there for, uh, right? This, this is because therefore is a connecting word. It, it ties thoughts together to, to build an argument. And the author of Hebrews is telling the reader what we've just discussed. We're going to dig into that a little deeper and see what the application of these truths are for your daily lives as Christians. So what do we see being connected here? Well, it's a continuation of what started at the beginning of chapter 8. William Lane in his commentary writes, the completion of the core instruction concerning the high priestly office and the sacrifice of the Son of God, chapters 8 through 10, 18, called for pastoral reflection on the implications this has for Christian faith and practice. So don't miss this. What the author of Hebrews has done up to this point to this church that is suffering is teach them sound doctrine. And the section that we are in is the application you, you see what he's doing here. Doctrine is not just theory. It must be applied. Faith must be practiced as well as professed. Truth must be lived. With, with this in view of what he's done, what we first see here is Christ's perfect sacrifice in verses 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have confidence, how? How do we have confidence to enter the holy places? 
This is, this is not normal, nor is this the way. And Leviticus 16, which is telling us about the Day of Atonement, this is what God tells Moses, quote, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark. Why? So that he may not die. The Day of Atonement tells us how we're to enter the presence of God, except that you or that we is really a you and that you is even more specific than that. Uh, It's limited to one day a year that they could enter the holy place. More than that, it's limited to one person on that one day of year. More than that, it's limited to an Israelite on that one day. Limited to an Israelite who's from the tribe of Levi. More than that, it's limited to a priest from the tribe of Levi who's an Israelite. And more than that, it's limited to the high priest. Men men realize it's not normal for us to have access to the holy places of God. And here the author of Hebrews is telling us we have confidence. How do we have confidence? Well, he tells us by the blood of Jesus in living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Think about this great truth, men. What was once restricted to one man once a year is now open to all of us who are in Christ because of what he's accomplished. Philip Hughes again says, our access is through the curtain. The allusion is undoubtedly to the curtain which shut off the Holy of Holies from the holy place and Levitical sanctuary and symbolize the exclusion of sinful mankind from the presence of God at the moment of his death on the cross, which was also the moment of our atonement. The menacing and obstructing curtain was rent from top to bottom, indicating that God had acted and the way into his holy presence was open at last. What, what is the consequence we see of sin in Genesis chapter 3? Well, we see death, yes, but, but also we see Adam and Eve cast out of the garden. They're cast out of the presence of God. Do you guys see this great truth this morning? He has made a way for us to enter once again into the very presence of God. The God-man has restored what sinful man broke. Then our author moves to the second foundational truth to hold on to. That is, in verse 21, Christ, our great priest, which says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. What, what does it mean for Jesus to be our great priest? Well, author of Hebrews helps, helps us flesh out this answer. In Hebrews 5, 1, he says, quote, For every high priest chose appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So Jesus, as our great priest, acts on our behalf in relation to God. But how is he better from the priests of old? Well, again, looking at our chapter here in verses 11 through 14, our author says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the question this morning, men, is, have you you taken these truths to heart? See the glories of our risen Savior and know that if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, your sins have been fully paid for and the curtain that once separated us and God has been torn in two. So with this foundation laid from our author Hebrews, we move then into the third point, 
into the let us statements. We've been so far, we've seen that this letter is written to a suffering, struggling church. Uh, They're tempted to throw in the towel as a result of their suffering. And how has the author of Hebrews responded to them? He's pointed them back to the glories of Christ. Uh, He's given them sound doctrine. But now he moves to the application in light of what Jesus has accomplished. These are the three let us statements with the first one being draw near in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In this first let us, we see two beautiful words for those who are presently going through suffering. That is draw near. As, as we've already discussed, brothers, entering the holy place is an incredible privilege we now possess because of Christ. Why, why would we not draw near to God? Why would we not earnestly seek him in prayer, knowing that our entrance into his presence is not based on what we have done, but solely on the finished work of Christ? It is because to draw near to God in full assurance of faith. And the author uses this covenantal language to describe the blessings of those now under the new covenant. In Hebrews 9.13, he says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And, And if you see this here, our author uses this peculiar phrase, Washed with pure water, which, which likely is a reference to Christian baptism, an outward sign of an inward reality, but must have had Ezekiel 36.25 on his mind as he penned this letter to this church. This is a passage for telling the blessings of the new covenant. Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36 says, I, God, will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And don't miss the next verse here in Ezekiel, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A passage this audience he's writing to certainly would have been familiar with. Um, What is he doing by alluding to Ezekiel? He's saying, brothers, covenant that was promised from old, we possess it today. He's reminding them of the glorious truths of the gospel. So let us draw near in full assurance of faith. How? Through the perfect final sacrifice of Jesus and our belonging to a new and better covenant. Our faith is not in in anything we have done or will do, but solely and completely in Christ's work. Which then we get to the second let us, let us hold fast in verse 23. Let us hold fast to confess he who promised is faithful. Again, guys, remember, Hebrews is written to this suffering, struggling church. And because of their sufferings, they are tempted to abandon the faith. What does the author of Hebrews tell them to do? He tells them to hold fast, which is not the first time he's done this in this letter. In 4.14, he says, Since then we have a great priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And again in 3 6, he says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our. I see what's at stake here in Hebrews. 
because of the sufferings these Christians faced, they are tempted to throw in the towel. They're tempted, they're tempted to forsake Christ. See with what force the author warns them not to stray from their faith in one of the five warnings throughout this letter. This is verse 26 of chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Or earlier in another warning, and the author of Hebrews tells them in 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Listen to these next words from him. This is verse 13 and 14. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Brothers, what the authors of Hebrews is not saying is you can lose your salvation. Rather, what the author of Hebrews is saying is what is one of the signs that you truly are saved? Hold fast to the end, that you will run your race with endurance. You will finish well. Brothers, the the author of Hebrews, with these warnings, he he means to make you uncomfortable. Um, they're, They're intentionally strongly worded to show what's at stake. The threat is that members of this church are looking to apostatize to ease their present sufferings. But notice here in verse 23, what he roots this let us in. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. We do not have a grace who have served and then passed away. No, our great priest is still presently alive today. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on our behalf. So hold fast. Do not waver. Run your race with endurance and look to Christ and know that he is faithful to fulfill these promises. It is by no coincidence we move then from holding fast the confession of our hope to the final let. Consider verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we immediately see here is that the author of Hebrews is teaching us that as Christians, we are to be intentional with one another. Consider, we are to think about, we are to dwell upon what? What what are we to spend our time thinking about? How we can stir up one another to love and good works. We, We are to be looking out for each other. A helpful way, I think, of viewing this is by thinking about adoption. Uh, Savannah and I are considering adopting, and as a result, we've been talking about adopting more and more. Go figure. Um, but as Savannah and I have been talking about adopting, she's brought us profound. It may be obvious to all of you guys. But when we finalize that adoption with, with that child, they, they will have had a previous life, well, what, whatever that may have been. Uh, they will have had their routines their schedules, their home. Yet, when that adoption is finalized, all of that will begin to change. Their routines will change to our routines. Their schedules will change to our schedules. Their home will change to our home. And most significantly, their last name will change to Crawford. 
They will share a room with other Crawfords. They will go to school with the Crawfords. They will eat meals with the Crawfords. They, they will become a Crawford. New identity for them. And it means doing specific things. Yes, they will have new parents, but also they'll have new siblings. For those of us in Christ, we, we have been adopted. We have the same father in heaven, which means if you are in Christ this morning, we, we are family. If you will, church is the proverbial dinner table. It's, it's where we gather as the family of God. It's where we meet and share about our day and encourage one another to stand firm in the faith and persevere and stir up one another to love and good works. With this view, the church than some institution built to meet your needs. We, we deceive ourselves by believing we can be independent. Christian perseverance is a community endeavor. So, brothers, this morning, are you actively thinking about how you can stir up each other to love and good works? When when is the last time that you've done this? Think about how this changes your view of church. Mark Dever and Paul Alexander wrote in their book, The Deliberate Church, quote, while our individual walks are crucial, We are impoverished in our personal pursuit of God if we do not avail ourselves of the help that is available through mutually edifying relationships in our covenant church family. So what then do we see immediately following the instructions to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works here in this passage? Well, what we see is that some of those to whom this is written have made a habit of neglecting the gathering, a habit of neglecting church. I, I was born and raised in Oregon, and, and if you will, uh, the, the pioneer spirit is alive and well in Andrew Crawford. Uh, when, when I have a home project that's beyond my expertise, which isn't that difficult to do, um, <laughs> you, you better bet that I'm not asking for help. Um, I can get this thing figured out. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can watch plenty enough YouTube videos to sort this thing together. Um, I, I say that only because it's, it's in the air we breathe here in Oregon and in the West. We are highly individualistic, and it is to the detriment of our Christian walk. Do you notice in that example, uh, the focus of everything is the self. It's me. I can do this. I can sort this out. My needs, etc. cetera. Um, all too often, high individualism has infiltrated the way we view the local gathering. Church has become something to meet your needs. I don't like the music. It's too loud. It's too quiet. I just don't feel very connected at the church. I, I, I'd rather just stay home. Um, there's really no one else there that has the same interests or hobbies as me. I, I really wish that we would turn the lights down. I really wish we would turn the lights up and, and on and on we go. Uh, all of these have this relationship out of whack. Church is a gathering of local believers who have committed to each other to stir up one another to love and good works. And when suffering comes, and it will come, fast and persevere. Church is not about meeting these superficial needs. No, church is about worshiping God together for what he's done through his son, Jesus, and loving your brothers and sisters well. Again, Philip Hughes writing on these two verses here, he says, There are signs of a weakening of the bonds of Christian fellowship, 
resulting from a deficiency of that love which should unite them in Christ and resulting in a falling off of those compassionate deeds by which Christian love expresses itself. Unconcern for the well-being of the body of which they are members is symptomatic of self-concern and egocentricity. Selfishness and divisiveness go hand in hand, for self-love breeds the spirit. He who does not love his fellow Christians fervently from the heart feels no compelling need to associate himself with them. So, men, do you currently have a habit of neglecting the physical gathering? Are there times of the year where you could look at your calendar and essentially block it out, either intentionally or unintentionally, and say, yeah, we're not going to be faithful at church for this month? Be it hunting season just opened, or it's, it's sports season for my kids, or, hey, man, like, you know the summer's in Oregon. We've got to capitalize on the sunshine while we have it. Men, men, watch your life. This, this could happen to any one of us if we are not careful. And we need the church. Guard your Sundays to ensure you and your family are free for the Sunday gathering. And notice in verse 25, the author ties neglecting the gathering as not encouraging with the use of the word but. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And, and no men, this word translated as encouraging here is the same Greek word used as 13, which says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. And remember what the author says in the next verse, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, looking back to the hold fast, the confession of our hope, Christian perseverance is a community endeavor. Brothers, if you are neglecting the gathering, what the author of Hebrews is telling us this morning is that you are not encouraging your brothers to persevere in times of suffering. Remember, this this is written to a church that's going through difficult times. So what are some practical examples of encouraging? Uh, Too often, as we've discussed, everything we do in church, we think of individualistically and not corporately. So tomorrow, when we're gathered together and we're singing, yes, you are singing to God and praising him for what Christ, but also you're singing out loud so that those around you can hear truths professed from your mouth and be encouraged. So, so sing loudly. Or the next time we take communion, pick up your head and look around at everyone taking the elements together and be encouraged that at that moment, all of you gathered are confessing the same thing. As, as we've learned throughout the course of this year at these men's events, God is sovereign, yet he also chooses to, that we make day after day after day. We have been called to run our race with endurance and by faithfully attending church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we do not know how God will place other believers in our path to use our faithfulness so that they are encouraged to persevere. So do not deceive yourselves this morning, brothers, by thinking that you do not need the church. But also, do not be deceived by thinking that other Christians don't need you. Um, I want to provide you guys with, with another practical example of how this encouraging looks. It doesn't always have to be, you know, positive, you know, rainbows and sunshine. Keep it up. Um, this encouraging that our author of Hebrews is talking about is encouraging towards something. That something is running your race well. So I was fortunate enough to have this happen between me and another brother. 
Um, I, I was bent out of shape uh, regarding how certain things were going on. And, and as a result, I was sinning. Uh, I had allowed bitterness to take hold in me, but I was woefully blind to, to the sin in my life. So much so that I asked a brother to coffee to explain how I was right and how I wasn't being treated the way that, that I should be. And, and over coffee, I was so distraught that I was almost in tears. I mean, like, I'm sure you guys see the trend here. Pride. So after I presented my case to this brother, you know, he looked, looked me in the eye and he said, hey, Andrew, you're sinning. Um, looking back on that, I could not be more grateful for the faithfulness of that brother in that situation. That he was, but had the courage to call out the sin in my life as he saw it. That he told me, Andrew, cast aside this weight. It's not helping you run your race well. So, man, what's, what's the role of the church in times of suffering? I certainly would have told you I was suffering in that moment. And how did the church respond? It pointed my sin to me where it still clung so closely and called to me, Andrew, run your race with endurance. Look to Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith. If, if we're going to learn from the author of Hebrews this morning, we in, when we encounter a brother who is suffering, it means to realize the seriousness of the situation, grab them by their face and point them back to Christ. Remind them of the glories of what he has accomplished and show them that there is no hope in anything but Christ. There is no hope in the sacrificial system of old. There is no hope in presidents or governors or measures, or firearms, or all of the prepping you may have done. True, lasting, only to be found in Christ. Why? Because he's superior to all things. And finally, speaking of Christ, the last statement we read in verse 25 directly connects back to encouraging one another. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Now, there's some debate regarding what is exactly meant by the day. Some believe it's referring to the imminent destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, whereas others see it as the second coming of Christ. Uh, Regardless, as we learn from the book of Joel, if this is referring to a lesser day of the Lord, day given by God to reveal our desperate need for him and point to the truth that there is coming a final day, the application for us this morning remains the same. That is... Jesus is returning. This is a sober reminder that the final day of the Lord is drawing near, and that should cause us all the more to encourage one another to hold fast. So brothers, as, as we close this morning, there's one see in this passage. One final point back to Jesus as a complete foundation of the church and for what we should be doing for our fellow brothers and sisters in times of suffering. Look with me again to these three lettuce statements and see in each of them that the author has rooted a further reason as to why we should be striving for this as believers. In verse 22, we have full assurance. Why? Because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Verse 23, we hold fast to our hope. Why? Because Jesus presently is faithful. Verses 24 through 25, we consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Why? Because Jesus, do you see what the author of Hebrews is is doing here? Let us do these things because of what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. We, We must persevere, men. Do not waver and see the great blessing of the church in times of suffering. 
And in times when you are not suffering, what, what does that mean for you? Well, when you're not suffering, simply be in church. <laughs> Encourage those who are presently going through suffering. Church is a place where we gather as a family to encourage one another, to be more like Christ, and to learn to persevere in spite of our suffering. And through two, our author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So grab your brother who may be going through suffering and point them back to Christ. Show them how what they are holding on to is not helping them run their race with endurance and ultimately help them run their race well. So brothers, this morning, the question is for all of us, are are you running your race well? Are you considering how you can stir up other brothers and sisters, to love and good works? Are you encouraging each other as we see this day drawing near? It's, it's not a matter of if suffering will come, but when suffering comes. If you are not presently suffering, you will suffer in the future. Church as solely as a place to serve your needs, but think of how you can give to other believers. Be involved in church. Because the church is more than this institution built to meet your needs, but the church is where we come together as family. Encourage those who are struggling, and together we run our race with endurance, looking to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we we praise your name um, for the opportunity to look at your word this morning together as brothers in Christ. And we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your glory, asking that the seed of your word now sown among us will take deep root, that that neither the burning heat of persecution or the thorny cares of this life choke it out. But as seed sown to bring forth abundance, as you, Father, have already appointed. We praise the name of Jesus for what he has accomplished on our behalf, that the veil that once separated God and man has been torn in two through his final finished work on the cross. And may we, as your children, see the great value of the church. And may we be constant in encouraging one another to hold fast to our confession. And may we run our race well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.